Mark chapter 11, I'm going to uh, read for us from verses uh, 12 to 25. But this morning, we're just going to be looking at verses 12 through to 19. So Mark 11, 12 um, to 25, but we're going to look this morning at verses 12 to 19. Mark 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, that is, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that as we look to your word now, we pray that by your spirit, you would enlighten our minds to understand your word and that you would give us soft, receptive hearts to your truth this morning. Lord, we pray that you would feed us your word by your spirit, that you would strengthen us, edify us, deepen our faith, bring conviction, rebuke us, bring us to repentance. We pray that you would sanctify us in your word. We pray this for the glory of Christ's name. Amen. So we saw um, two weeks ago that Jesus had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as the priest king riding on a donkey fulfilling the, the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. He's receiving the praise and devotion of the people. They're throwing their cloaks on the ground as a sign of submission and, and the palm branches proclaiming victory, shouting, Hosanna, save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This, of course, was meant to be the fulfilling of Psalm 118 where the Messiah comes to the temple to receive blessing from the people. The king has come to deliver us. But in this next story, we see that things don't unfold the way the people thought that it would unfold. 
we're told in verse 11, after his triumphal entry, that he entered the temple. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he goes in, he, he looks around, and, and we're not told what he observed or what he was thinking. But after he does this, he goes back to the town of Bethany, the village of Bethany. But this moment of him observing the temple leads to everything that's about to happen. And the first thing we see is a pronouncement of judgment. Judgment is coming to Israel. And so we're told on the following day, coming from Bethany, that Jesus was hungry. As it says in verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So he sees in the distance a fig tree. And it's grown leaves. And he wants to see if there's any fruit on it. But he ends up finding nothing but leaves. And we're told why. For it was not the season for figs. Fig season would have been about five weeks away. Now, what in the world is Jesus doing? Jesus isn't ignorant about the fact that figs are about uh, the, the figs are about five weeks away. He he grew up in Israel. He knows this. But everything that Jesus does is intentional. Just as he was intentionally trying to communicate something to his disciples about the prediction about the donkey, now he's using this fig tree to communicate something else to them. This fig tree, having leaves but no fruit, captures or illustrates perfectly the spiritual state of Israel and their worship. There is a portrayal of health, but when you get up close, there's no fruit. As Kent Hughes says, the fact that this particular fig tree had a luxuriant foliage but bore no fruit portrayed exactly what Jesus had seen in Jerusalem. Israel was a barren fig tree and the leaves only covered its nakedness. The magnificence of the temple and its ceremonies hid the fact that Israel had not brought forth the fruit of righteousness demanded by God. Jesus using this fig tree wasn't a coincidence to describe judgment. The fig tree in the scriptures has a long history in the Old Testament. The fig tree is used throughout the Old Testament as a metaphor to convey Israel's relationship toward God. So for example, in Jeremiah 8, when God is describing Israel's sin and treachery, this is what we read in verse 13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the fine, no figs on the fig tree, even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. You see, Jesus here is describing Israel 
the very same way that Yahweh God does in the Old Testament. And so Jesus observes this about the fig tree, and what does he do? Well, he does exactly what Yahweh does in the Old Testament. When Israel forsakes God and acts treacherously, he announces judgment upon Israel. And that's precisely what Jesus does in verse 14. He said to it, that is, he said to the fig tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. What Jesus is doing here is he is cursing the fig tree. Peter affirms that this is exactly what Jesus did in verse 21 when he says to Jesus, Jesus, the fig tree that you cursed. He pronounces a curse upon the fig tree that it would never bear fruit again. And in so doing, he was pronouncing judgment upon Israel, but specifically the religious leaders of Israel for bearing no fruit and for their unrighteous ways. And this, of course, is demonstrated from how the people of Israel were conducting themselves in the temple, the meeting place between God and man. This was a pronouncement of judgment upon Israel. You see this with God in the Old Testament. Christ is making a statement about what's going to happen to Israel in the future. And the ultimate fulfillment of this, of course, is 70 AD when Jerusalem and the temple are utterly destroyed by the Romans. But we get a foretaste of Christ's judgment in what happens next in the narrative. Jesus judges, he purifies the temple. That's what we read in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple and he was teaching them and saying to them is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of robbers jesus enters jerusalem he goes into the temple and he becomes violent. He sees what's happening and he reacts with righteous indignation and a holy fury. He drives out the people who are selling and buying. He flips tables and chairs. There is a rage and an aggressiveness here that we have not seen in Jesus up until this point. So much for the meek and mild Jesus. Now, we need to remember that Jesus is indeed gentle and lowly. He is meek. He is a lamb. But he's also the lion of the tribe of Judas. And hear this. Jesus is dangerous. He is dangerous. Remember in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lucy asked Mr. Beaver about Aslan. She finds out that, that he's a lion and, and Mr. Beaver is going to take them to meet Aslan. And so Lucy, a little hesitant over the fact that, that she's going to meet a lion, she says to Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds with, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. But he's good. That's who Jesus is. 
He's dangerous, but he's good. Now, what was it that caused such a response by Jesus? Was the issue simply that they were selling and buying in the temple? No, not exactly. The, Levit the, the Levitical law actually allowed for such a thing. Uh, people were permitted to purchase animals that they would use for their sacrifices in their worship to God. Many of the God-fearing Gentiles would also exchange their coins in order to pay the temple tax. This was permitted. So why such a hostile response from Jesus? Well, there's two reasons. One is explicitly clear and the other is implied. First, Jesus perceives that all of this selling and buying has become a place of greed. It's no longer about worship, it's about making a buck. And this, of course, would have been driven by the religious leaders. In other words, the temple court has become a place of moral corruption. There is hypocrisy and corruption amongst the people, especially the religious leaders. You see this when Jesus says to them in verse 14, you've made it into a den of robbers. Now when he says that, he's actually referencing Jeremiah 7 verse 11, which I read earlier. In Jeremiah 7, God sends Jeremiah to stand in the gate of the Lord's house, the temple, just as Jesus stands in the gate here. Jeremiah is called by God to confront Israel over their wickedness and hypocrisy because they come to the temple trusting in the temple while outside the temple they're living corrupt, hypocritical, immoral, wicked lives. And that's why God tells Jeremiah to say to the people of Israel in verse 2, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Don't trust in the temple. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. In other words, don't think that you're simply okay because of the temple. This is the temple. The real issue isn't whether or not you're finding security in the temple of God, but whether or not you're in right relationship to God and you're walking in his ways. And that's why God says in verse 8 to 11 of Jeremiah 7, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come? And stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Only to go on doing all of these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, my eye, my eye myself have seen it, declares the Lord. You see, what Jesus was doing here in Mark 11 
was making it clear that what happened in Jeremiah 7, the moral corruption and hypocrisy, was now happening in Israel, especially amongst the religious leaders. You know, it's interesting that the sins that are listed in Jeremiah 7, the religious leaders practiced and they're recorded all throughout the Gospel of Mark. And that's why Jesus' judgment upon Israel begins with the religious leaders. That's why in chapter 12, you have the parable of the, te the tenants, which is a direct condemnation of the religious leaders. And so one of the reasons why Jesus responds this way, this flipping of the tables and the chairs, was because of the hypocrisy and the moral corruption of the people, particularly the religious leaders, but not only them. But there's also another reason for why he's enraged at what he sees in the temple. And it has to do with him quoting Isaiah 56 verse 7 in verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers. In Isaiah 56, there's this glorious picture of the coming salvation of God and we're told that both Jew and foreigner and eunuch will be invited to God's holy mountain the mountain of the temple and he will make them joyful in the house of prayer the nations will be invited and welcomed into the house of Yah in, in, in the house of Yahweh to worship him and pray to him this is what Jesus is referring to when he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And here in Mark, Jesus is full of fury because the area in which all this noise is happening is in the area where the Gentiles were permitted to come and pray. And there's a lack of reverence and complete indifference to the sacred worship of God that's supposed to be taking place here. This is supposed to be the place of joy-filled worship and communion with God. This is the most sacred space on earth and the Jews have made it become a common market. They have become indifferent to the sacred corporate worship of God and Jesus is consumed with seal for the worship of his father. This is supposed to be the meeting place between God and men and they've turned it into a den of thieves. They're indifferent to worship. This is what creates such a hostile response from Jesus. Moral corruption and a disregard for the worship of Yahweh. And how do the, the religious leaders respond to Jesus' actions and words? Verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Instead of heeding Jesus' warning and repenting, they instead were seeking a way to destroy him. They were fulfilling the image of the fig tree. 
No longer shall this fig tree bear any fruit. No longer shall the, shall the religious leaders ever bear any fruit again. They wanted to destroy him, for they feared him because of the impact he was having on the people. People were flocking to Jesus rather than the religious leaders. They were losing their influence. They were jealous. And that's what we see in chapter 12 with the parable of the tenants. They kill the heir because they want his place. But what we need to see here is that Jesus, by his actions and words, was claiming an authority over the temple. An authority he had intrinsically because he's the son of God. As Wynandi states, Jesus, as the father's son, is laying claim to the temple. And as the father's son, he possesses the right and authority to cleanse his father's dwelling place so as to make it a true house of prayer for all peoples. He can do what he did because the temple belongs to him. Jesus was not looting like some people claim he was today. Jesus owns the temple. He is Yahweh in the flesh and he can cleanse it. So what do we do with all of this? His declaring judgment upon Israel for its fruitlessness. His cleansing the temple of corruption and indifference to the worship of Yahweh. What do we do with all of this? Well, I think there are some very important truths for us here in this story. And the first is this. Christ is hostile toward unrepentant sin and will judge unrepentant sinners. Christ is hostile toward unrepentant sin and will judge unrepentant sinners. He will not tolerate sin forever. He looks at the fig tree and he sees no fruit and he pronounces judgment. He cleanses the temple and declares war upon all that is dishonoring to God. And what we see here with Israel is a foretaste of Christ's judgment upon the nations of the world. Christ will come and judge the nations in righteousness. Listen, if you claim that Jesus is only ever accepting, tolerant, and inclusive, you don't worship the living Christ. You're worshiping a Jesus of your imagination, and that's idolatry. And it won't be the inclusive, accepting, tolerant Jesus that you will stand before and give an account to. It will be the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Holy One of Israel, the righteous King of the universe, the Judge of all. Let me read to you how John describes Jesus in Revelation 19, when he returns to judge the wicked. This is a vision that John is given, and this is what he saw. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Does your Jesus make war? His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest that is the rest of the nations of the people who defy God and make war against Christ. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the Jesus that every human being has to reckon with. And the question that each of us need to ask is, will he see any fruit? You see, I want you to see something that's really important. I said that Jesus is hostile toward unrepentant sin and judges unrepentant sinners. That word unrepentant is extremely important. Jesus didn't declare judgment upon Israel because of sin. Jesus does not judge sinners. He judges unrepentant sinners. The issue in Israel wasn't sin. The issue in Israel was unrepentant sin. If the religious leaders, after Jesus had cleansed the temple, repented, Jesus would have embraced them as his brothers. We see the heart of Christ for Jerusalem. He wanted the people of Israel to repent. In Matthew 23, 37 to 38, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. And we read these words of his, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Or Luke 19, 41 to 44, which is actually also the triumphal entry of Jesus. But Luke records something for us that Mark leaves out. And this is what we read. And when he drew near the city and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, Jesus judges Israel with a broken heart. He wept as he observed their unwillingness to, un to embrace him as the Savior. He wept as he observed their unwillingness to repent of their sins. Jesus will never judge a repentant sinner. He only judges unrepentant sinners. Every single person here this morning, including myself, are sinners. But some of us are repentant sinners and some of us are unrepentant sinners. The only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that the Christian is a sinner who has repented and turned to Jesus. And if you have truly repented and embraced Jesus, Jesus will look upon you and he will see fruit. It might be the smallest fruit, but it's still fruit. And so if you're here this morning and you're a sinner like the rest of us, my question for you is, have you truly repented of your sin and turned to Jesus? Because if you don't, please hear me. Jesus will judge you for your sins because he is holy and good. So repent and believe upon him for the forgiveness of your sins. Christ is hostile toward unrepentant sin and will judge unrepentant sinners. Second thing that we learn from this passage is that just as Jesus cleansed the temple, so he has and will cleanse his covenant people from all sin and corruption. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus prefigured the ultimate cleansing of his covenant people through his death and resurrection by which he would become the new temple, the meeting place between God and man. This cleansing of the temple was pointing forward when through his death and resurrection, Jesus would cleanse us from our sins and make all things new. As Wynandi states, here we perceive in the act of cleansing the temple the character of his yet-to-be-performed saving acts and what they will accomplish. Jesus has triumphantly entered Jerusalem to cleanse the people of their sins and so make them worthy to enter a new temple where they will be able to worship God in righteousness and holiness. You see, the cleansing of the temple prefigures his work of salvation on the cross by which he will cleanse and redeem his people from their sins and ultimately cleanse the cosmos of sin. That's why we sing, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Have you experienced the cleansing of Jesus Christ? You might ask, how can I? And the answer is simple. Repent and believe upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He died that you might be cleansed from sin. Third thing that we can learn from this passage, and this is primarily here for Christians. Jesus is deeply concerned about our worship. I don't think concerned is strong enough. Jesus was consumed with zeal 
because he saw the sacred worship of God treated as common amongst the people. They were indifferent to worship, and Jesus was inflamed with rage towards their attitude of worship. And I think it's important for us to think about how we may approach worship with a spirit of indifference. We know that we don't need the temple anymore to worship God because Jesus Christ himself has become our temple. He is the fulfillment of the temple. And wherever we gather as the people of God, whether it's outside or in a school or in a church building, we are able to worship, we are able to fellowship and commune with God because Christ has become the meeting place between God and his people. And therefore, we ought not, like Israel, ever approach worship with a spirit of indifference or treating that which is sacred as common. And so let me, or should I say, it's important for us in our context to ask how we do this. So let me give you some possible examples. Most obvious is you show up to corporate worship and you just go through the motions like many of the Israelites did. You participate in everything, but your heart is cold. You worship God with your lips, but your heart is far from him. That's how you approach worship with indifference. Or, possibly, you're just not all that committed to regularly coming to worship God with the people of God. Coming to corporate worship twice or once a month, I think, reveals an indifference to the worship of God. I think that's the truth. I realize there are exceptions to the rule, as some of us have shift work and, and jobs and all that, and I understand that. But in general, neglecting to gather on a weekly basis for the corporate worship of God demonstrates an indifference to the worship of God. I believe that the most important two hours in our week is the gathering of the saints for the worship of God on the Lord's Day. And this past year, with at times having that disrupted, it has convinced me all the more. And I don't know fully what happened historically, but there was a major shift in Christian thinking in regards to the weekly gathering of the church on the Lord's Day for the worship of God, where it just wasn't all that important anymore. The idea of gathering for worship as a Christian once a month or bi-weekly would have been utterly foreign to the early church and to be frank, for almost all of church history. And when I see Christians choosing to go to a friend's birthday party on a Sunday instead of going to church, it's baffling to me. When I see Christians intentionally planning to have their wedding on the Lord's Day, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I think a lot of pastors are fearful to call out Christians for their lack of commitment to the weekly gathering of God's people for worship, probably because they're afraid to be called legalists, because that will happen. But I'm just going to tell you, I'm not afraid of that. And so if you're not committed, as you are able, 
to gather weekly with the people of God for the worship of God, you are indifferent to the worship of God, the God who saved you. Let me go a little further. I have real potential of offending this morning. A constant showing up for corporate worship late. I'm sorry if you showed up this morning late. (laughs) A constant showing up for corporate worship late reveals an indifference to the worship of God. I understand there are moments when this happens, but when this becomes a repetitive practice, it demonstrates an indifference to the worship of Almighty God. Now, I know you may object. It's my culture. It's my culture. Well, friends, I also have a culture, and my culture says it's okay to dishonor my parents. Culture isn't neutral. Every culture has good things about it and bad things about it, and we ought to embrace the good of our cultures and reject the bad. Don't use your culture as an excuse for your indifference to the worship of God. Let me explain to you why I'm speaking to this. Because I believe every element of our worship service is essential to our edification and sanctification. I think a lot of Christians have this idea that the only thing that's really important is the preaching of God's word. If that were the case, then all I would do is preach. But God has established certain things that we're called to do in worship for our edification and sanctification and for the honor and glory of God. There's a reason why we sing to one another. There's a reason for why we corporately humble ourselves before God and with one voice confess our sins to one another and to the Lord. Every Sunday we do this, we are together as one body proclaiming that we are in need of mercy and grace on a regular basis. There's a reason why we have the public reading of scripture because the words of Jesus are eternal life. They are food for our soul. And together when we listen intently and thank God for his word, we're proclaiming we need to hear God speak and we need to feed upon his word. Every element matters for the edification and sanctification of our lives. Jesus uses these things to transform us into his likeness. All of these things matter to God, not just the preaching of his word. And when you show up 15 to 20 minutes late, 20 minutes late every week, you're saying they don't matter to God. If you can show up to work on time in order to get paid, but you can't show up to worship on time in order to commune and worship God, it says something about you. These are just a few examples of how we might approach the corporate worship of God with indifference. And brothers and sisters, Jesus will not tolerate such indifference when it comes to our worship. He died for our sins so that he might receive the worship that he is worthy of. Do not approach the worship of God with a lack of reverence and a spirit of indifference. He is worthy of your all. Let me read to you Revelation 5, 
And as I read it, a simple question to ask yourself is this. Does my worship reflect the worship of heaven? Does my worship reflect the worship of heaven? In Revelation 5, John is given this vision into the very throne room of God, and this is what he sees. Then I saw in the right hand of him, that is God, who was seated on the throne, a scroll written with it, within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Does your worship reflect the worship of heaven? Brothers and sisters, there is no indifference of worship in heaven. And may this also be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we simply ask that you would tune our hearts to sing your praise and that you would revive our souls in such a way that we would worship you in a manner worthy of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.